Welcome to the 373rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Jeju, South Korea. Today, I welcome Salani Baman, a scholar whose research explores the intersections of care work, welfare policy, and social provision in the United States. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 8th, 2021, there are 5,054,097 deaths from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Yes, Kelly. A nurse in the COVID fight dies at 48. That's the headline of an article in the New York Times published March 31st, 2020 by Neil Genslinger. Back in January of 2020, before the first coronavirus case turned up in the United States, Kias Kelly, an assistant nurse manager at Mount Sinai West in Manhattan, was singled out in the hospital's blog, not for helping to make someone well, but for helping a family deal with patient's death. Assistant nurse manager Kias Jordan Kelly, RN, showed my mom and us empathy and compassion that helped us get through the weekend and what was to come. A man named Joseph Foucault had written to the hospital's president. He went above and beyond, the man wrote. Just a few weeks later, it was Mr. Kelly's family and friends who would need empathy and compassion. He died on March 24th, about a week after being placed on a ventilator, March 24th, 2020. He may have been the first nurse in New York to succumb to the illness. His death at age 48 was reported all over the country and beyond, and friends and colleagues used it to highlight the shortage of protective gear for medical personnel. It was a far different sort of fame than Mr. Kelly might have dreamed of when he first arrived in New York years ago from the Midwest. Friends there knew him as James or Jamie. He was born Marion James Smith IV in Chicago on September 28, 1971. He grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and graduated from Everett High School there in 1989. He moved to New York sometime after earning a bachelor's degree in performing arts and dance at Butler University in Indianapolis in 1993. He hoped to pursue a dance career. As with many who come to New York with show business aspirations, that ambition fell by the wayside, and Mr. Kelly went to nursing school. He graduated from the nursing program at New York University in 2012. Social media have been awash in tributes from friends and colleagues in the past week. This article again comes from March of 2020, and his sister, Maria Patrice Sharon, has done numerous interviews talking about the suddenness of his death and pleading for more protective gear for those on the front lines. Too soon, too quick, and not necessary, she told CNN. In an impassioned post on her Facebook page, March 27, 2020, Ms. Sharon wrote of how she hoped her brother would be depicted. Let me be absolutely clear, she said. Kios was not a victim. He served with love. If you needed care, you would get it. He ran toward the oncoming enemy, determined to bring survivors back with him. That's who he was. Obituary of Kios Kelly, a nurse in the COVID fight who died at age 48 in March of 2020 in the New York Times. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today. And let me introduce my guest, Salani Baman, who's a PhD candidate in the Department of History and Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. Her research explores the intersections of care work, welfare policy and social provision in the United States. Her dissertation project focuses on questions of political economy, migration 
and intimate regulation during the first decades of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the United States. Salani Bauman, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Hi, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Let me start the way I generally do and find out where you're calling from and how it's looking there in terms of the pandemic. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York, um, and things are looking okay from the perspective of the pandemic over here. I think we had something just under a thousand new cases um, this week. Um, I might be wildly wrong on that, though. I, I, I guess it's sort of telling that I have stopped looking up daily numbers tallies. That's sort of where we're at. Um, I think our vaccination rates are slowly going up, but it seems to be kind of a daily struggle. We've just come off of a big um, kind of union struggle between city workers and municipal employees about vaccine mandates. That's sort of the political context over here around COVID. The new mayor um, is uh, recently elected, Eric Adams, and, and I noted one of the first things he said was he was going to review uh, mandatory vaccine policies. I don't know if you've been following that. What does he mean when he says that, if you know? I, you know, I have been following it. I'm definitely a local news hound. <laughs> um, but Good. You're the right person to talk to then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, unfortunately, the consensus on our new mayor is that often he says things that don't really have um, a tremendous amount of specific follow through or a clear interpretive potential. He also said he was going to take his first three salaries in Bitcoin. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of rhetorical gestures. Um, but the vaccine mandate has, I think, been controversial. And there were a lot of questions about whether or not we would have um, kind of, you know, 1975 fiscal crisis style work stoppages between the police and the firefighters and sanitation department workers. So um, that has not really come to pass in the last week, but I think there was kind of an open question when he said that. I, I was talking with another colleague last week about about this and trying to understand what's going on when public sector unions, particularly police in this case, and it happened in Chicago too, um, raise this kind of issue of a hard stance against a, a vaccine mandate. And I, you know, as you said, you know, the new mayor has made a statement. Maybe there's not a follow through. This is outside of what we're going to talk about in a minute, but I just wonder, since you're there in Brooklyn and you describe yourself as a news hound, um, what do you think is going on with that? I mean, is, is, is something else deeper just about the union has to seize every moment it can to signal that it's not going to be told what to do? Or is this authentic anti-vaccine hesitancy? What's going on, do you think? I think there are kind of multiple factors. I want to, it's not altogether unrelated to what we will talk about too later, but I think many of this kind of latest wave of public sector workers were on the front lines for many, many months, um, long before they had a choice and many were very exposed to COVID. Um, and there is at least a feeling that um, there should have been more involvement in the rollout of the policy, in having the union sort of be involved in creating the policy, especially because it's an unpaid leave policy, that there should be more choice. But I think whenever, you know, public sector unionism is kind of a big umbrella and public sector unions are everyone from SEIU kind of representing clerical workers and healthcare workers. And you have, you know, like the Police Benevolent Association, which I think is a very different kind of union. Um, so I think I'm sure with some unions, there is a political anti-vaccination bent in leadership. But I also think there is a lot of bad feeling from how things like, you know, public school closures to bringing teachers back were sort of orchestrated and how much protection people felt like their members had, or at least a seat at the table with the city. Um, but yeah, I think that it's been, it's been a, a real up and down um, process kind of negotiating all of that. That's really useful. And, and I, I guess at some level, uh, you know, obviously, there must be in the leadership. I'm thinking of the Chicago case now, just what I've read about it. I mean, the leadership has some sort of authentic. It's hard to say if they're anti-vax or pro-Trump, but they're signaling something political. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I appreciate the layer that you brought in, which is that these are also people, maybe I mean the police, but also all other kinds of essential workers who've been on the front lines from the beginning, and though to to have some kind of a policy rolled out now, um, with if they feel they haven't been. Uh, brought in fully into the development of that policy. It's just too bad that it has to be expressed 
in that kind of way and yes. bring it back. Yes, and I the, think it can yeah, kind of ahead. it can kind of feel a little bit like um, there there must not be adequate public health messaging or something about the messaging is clearly being um, subverted by institutions like Fox News or yeah. different kind of misinformation vectors that it feels like a dangerous thing to get the vaccine. It feels like something that is not in these union interests um, because we know that everyone from transit workers to firefighters actually experienced disproportionate COVID death, um, including the NYPD. It is such a big killer of um, any number of those union members that it feels uh, counterintuitive to be uh, looking out for member interest in that way. Yeah, thanks for taking a minute to talk about that. I, I, um, I wanna ask you also a question I've been asking everybody, if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of the pandemic period, something that really kind of sticks in your mind of this of this time. I know it's hard to choose one, but is there some moment in time that really kind of wraps this up for you? Wow. Um, I mean, I'm sure in your over 390 calls, you've talked to a lot of people in New York, but I will say those early months of the pandemic where there were a lot of sirens and we had the kind of 7 p.m. clapping feels really stark to me. I don't think I'll ever forget those months and it, it truly felt unreal. Um, in my neighborhood, I lived all the way uptown at the time and the 7 p.m. clap was a really big deal. I think, yeah, I if I had to pick one memory, it would be that one, but um, the kind of slow moving outward in from kind of the cloistering of our apartments to sort of daily racial justice protests and a city mandated curfew might be the other one. It sort of felt like watching an, an arc of history or something. It's it's rare that you have such a succinct idea that you're participating in history, uh, even though we all are all the time. And it very much felt like those months to me. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, those 90 days, I mean, the pandemic has had multiple different phases, but those 90 days, it's worth going. That's why I wanted also to read the obituary I read today of a sort of first nurse described, you know, first nurse obituary in the New York Times. Um, I feel like we're, well, I'll speak for myself, we're losing that a bit. And, and I think we need to return to that time and recapture some of those terrible firsts so we don't get unmoored right now. Definitely. And I think we, I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit um, dramatic or something, but I think that we have all experienced a kind of tremendous grief and there has not actually been any sort of societal reckoning with that we've been moving i think that's sort of what's at play a little bit with the vaccine mandates too is that there's not an acknowledgement of what we've all been through and i think especially if you were on the front lines or experienced that sort of rupture that traumatic rupture there hasn't been any sort of reckoning or reconciliation with it there has just been an effort to get back to normal or get back to speed which I on some level relate to, but I almost feel like therapeutically as a people, we might need to stop and kind of acknowledge what we've lived through. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So let me just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Salini Bauman today. Let's turn to your research and your dissertation, The Borders of Care, Immigration, Welfare, and Intimacy in the Era of AIDS. So um, tell us a bit about what you're working on with that, the kind of sources you're using, and then I want to see how you think about it, starting a project before the pandemic, and then now <laughs> moving towards the conclusion of it two years into this. Yeah. Um, well, I will say it is a really unique experience to be writing about a pandemic during a pandemic. I think it sure. has really changed even some of the things I have approached or how I've seen them. Um, my dissertation sort of kind of explores the political economy of uh, the first decades of the AIDS epidemic. So that's to say kind of Medicare and Medicaid policy, um, 
private insurance and some of the ways that insurance companies talked about risk or exclusion and how particular categories of people congealed in both, you know, the imaginary of who was worthy of public benefits, how people access different kinds of benefits, um, the sort of response on behalf of nonprofit organizations like the Gay Men's Health Crisis um, or the San Francisco AIDS Foundation compared to activist groups like ACT UP um, and maybe even kind of in contrast to earlier public health um, at, like radical groups like the Young Lords or the Black Panthers who were engaging in a kind of community-based healthcare provision. Um, and finally sort of ending with immigration policies specifically targeting um, amnesty and the exclusion of people with HIV from amnesty applications for a long time in the US is sort of back and forth policy dealing with HIV positive migrants, um, which continues to be a problem to this day. But yeah, and in terms of sources, I'm using a lot of gay men's health crisis notes and sources that stuff is all archived at the New York Public Library. It's a tremendous collection. Um, I've had the good fortune before the pandemic sort of shut down a lot of archives to have um, been able to look at a lot of personal letters and diaries of folks who donated their stuff to uh, queer repositories predominantly. So the USC One Archives has a lot of kind of journals and papers. Um, the GBLT Center in San Francisco has a kind of tremendous collection. And many of those archives really do come about, I think, from a desire to archive the AIDS crisis. Um, the center in New York, you know, I think you're obviously a historian of disaster and crisis. And I think of major crises, the AIDS epidemic was one that really prompted a lot of people to archive and document what they were doing and what they were feeling um, in pretty unique ways. Well, thanks for that. It's why I wanted to ask you about the sources also, just because of the challenges of doing work during this time. And, you know, for this, so this is two historians talking here. When you're cut off from your sources, there's a real terror um, that that comes. Even when you finish a project, I have to say, it's hard to to let them go. You <laughs> want to know where they are. You keep up with the archives that you spent time in for sure. Um, so you already had everything you needed before the the lockdown, or you had already you were at a at a writing phase and didn't need to get back to those archives. I'm just sort of curious because I've talked with other historians about this tension that they felt they were at a critical moment in a project and then all of a sudden archives are closed we don't know when it'll be back open good luck to you yes i did have a lot um i had made very handy use of an automatic clicker in the archive and had taken far too many pictures and was sort of already dealing with the fact that i felt like i had more than i could use um so i did spend a lot of time kind of going through that stuff but I have been really helped by the fact that I work on a time period into the 80s where so many of my sources have been digitized. Right. Um, and as I caught myself telling students earlier in the pandemic when I was teaching, a lot of things are being digitized in real time. And so I think that in terms of writing history remotely, we are pretty lucky. Um, a lot of the sources are accessible, though nothing quite I think does rival the sense of actually getting a, you know, an idea of how big a box is, what else might be in a box, what you're not looking for that you find because you happen sure. to be there, that kind of stuff. I know I, I basically started writing about insurance because in these files, there were so many folders about insurance that I couldn't help but think that perhaps it, you know, warranted more thinking. Um, and it has really been a formative part of my writing so far. Um, and. I will say archivists are also so helpful. If there is a student out there working on something, emailing an archivist is, has never done me wrong. It usually, you know, sometimes they have something digitized for another scholar. So I've been lucky that way. And, and just to return to the to the project, because you just mentioned you were working on insurance records. So take us back into the into the project and talk a little bit about what were you what were you looking for? I mean, trying to see how insurance companies and welfare providers began to understand HIV as a as a set of risks, what that was going to mean as it moved through the population in, in terms of their own exposure? Or, I mean, establish a little more context for that. Yeah, well, actually, my project began because I was uh, really interested in rent control in New York City. I was writing a history of housing regulation and housing policy. And I had written my undergraduate kind of thesis about prenatal drug user regulation and... Um, kind of 
particular uh, encroachments on like bodily autonomy um, that really came about in the first years of the crack epidemic and sort of social panic around pregnant women having children and using drugs. Um, and I've actually found many of the things I'm looking at to overlap with that population recently. Um, but rent control law was really interesting in New York because lease succession was a huge issue during the first years of the AIDS epidemic, because often people would live with their partners who they were not married to and be unable to inherit the lease that a partner left behind should they die, um, especially when same-sex marriage was not legal, domestic partnership was very new in the kind of early 80s. Um, and New York City's rent stabilization and rent control laws were already pretty embattled um, politically. Uh, they were often kind of maligned as the reason that new housing wasn't developed, et cetera, et cetera. And I had just read Sarah Shulman's kind of tremendous book, Gentrification of the Mind. And I was thinking about some of those questions and sort of what does it mean when there is sort of a mass death event or a pandemic that happens on the moment of such escalating um, capitalist turnover, right? It's the moment that the New York City real estate economy is really taking off the kind of mid to late 80s. There's tremendous incentive to get people out of apartments that have been stabilized for a long time. Um, and there was a case called Brasi, Brashi versus Stahl, which involved a couple, um, one of whom had died of AIDS-related complications, and the other one who was making a claim to, you know, being the functional husband um, who deserved to inherit this rent-controlled lease. And there were all of these sort of ways that he was able to prove that. And it really made me think about kind of the intimate and um, qualitative ways we try to make claims to certain social economic rights. Um, and I'd been thinking a lot about the New Deal welfare state and sort of the construction of family and sort of familial regulation is really central to the way the American welfare state operates and social regulation is part of that. And it AIDS was just all initially incidental to thinking about it, but it has become such a useful way of understanding different populations that are sort of deemed socially deviant or, um, you know, difficult outside of the protections of that state, be it because they are black women who were excluded from the New Deal or gay men who were not able to access certain kind of heteronormative protections. Um, and the insurance stuff kind of came about because there's a big fight in California around um, whether or not insurance companies can test for HIV as a, as a mm. risk factor and exclude people right. from insurance based on that. So I kind of look at that struggle and the way that risk kind of comes to be um, one of the, this, you know, thing that's understood in a very actuarial sense. Um, and I, someone actually just said that, you know, the biggest vaccine um, tool we have is probably private insurers saying Absolutely. that they will not cover people who are not vaccinated. And it was kind of resonant in that same way. Wow. So to, to start with, with housing and, and then end up in, in the HIV AIDS sort of welfare and insurance battles, that's, that's really instructive uh, to me because, again, it's, it shows that when we're talking about, in this case, a pandemic, um, we're talking about a bundle of sort of welfare concerns and needs and, and lots of different sort of decision makers and actors in this. And I just want to follow up on that part of it. You know, so if you're, if you're talking about um, housing in New York and this issue of, of um, you know, whether or not a lease can pass on after someone has died, who ends up making those decisions? Is that, is that also shuffled in these years? Is there some sort of awareness within the system that the system itself and there's there are people in that system and that the people yeah. in that system are human <laughs> beings and they're not um, incapable of compassion. I'm sort of curious how the human side of it with yeah. behind the government, how does that emerge? Well, it's very highly regulated. So there are a bunch of agencies in New York that control that, including, you know, the rent guidelines board. Um, the state actually controls rent control law in New York mm -hmm. city. So um kind of due to a series of political battles in the 70s, the city is actually not allowed to pass any law that is more um, stringent or pro-tenant than the state approves. So all kind of housing regulation happens at the state level. And I will say that tenant organizing in New York City is a tr like a really well-defined um, profession and 
tenant organizers do a tremendous amount of political education for their tenants. And some of the law, some of the administrative law um, is stuff that people know. So there's actually, I found a lot of kind of legal aid resources about how you make a case that your partner is effectively your spouse, right? You share a bank account, you make sure that your parents have met this person, you introduce them to your super, you receive mail at your address. There are all of these kind of administrative ways of signaling someone's belonging in a place that, you know, the humans then involved making a judgment about whether or not your relationship is legitimate um, are able to sort of understand you as deserving of certain protections that a, a spouse might have. Um, but I think it, it is also telling that many of those protections are things that would not be available to someone who is, let's say, living with their grandparent and not formally registered or any number of kind of functional families that we see in the New York City housing system, um, but who may not be kind of in a heterosexual adjacent partnership, but nonetheless, uh, rely on some sort of familial claim to housing or intimate claim to housing that um, is not as legible uh, on paper. And on the insurance side of, of things, um, how did that, I mean, I guess I know how it ended up eventually, but in, you're looking at this first decade of HIV AIDS pandemic. Um, what were the turning points there? Several. So interestingly, a lot of states pass regulations saying that insurance companies cannot test for, cannot exclude on the basis of a positive HIV test. And, hmm. you know, something that might be kind of familiar for now, it's nice. People have all this context of having lived through a pandemic. So things are not, you know, yeah. foreign concepts. But in the very beginning, the first HIV AIDS test comes out kind of in mass circulation in 1985. It's the ELISA test. Hmm. Um but it's not necessarily clear that that test is statistically useful if you're not at risk for HIV. So there's a high number of false positives for people who do not have the virus. It's unclear if HIV is what causes AIDS. In fact, there is a long and robust discussion where many people believe that it does not and that it is an invalid basis of discrimination because it doesn't mean that it will you know, turn into AIDS. So states pass laws in this kind of beginning period saying insurers cannot exclude people on that basis, in part because they're very afraid that being excluded from private insurance will mean that the Medicaid and Medicare systems will be totally overwhelmed because they're the insurers of last resort. Um, in large part, the insurers actually do win the right to exclude people on the mm -hmm. basis of HIV. There are some protections that are kind of... Um, grandfathered in towards the early 90s. The Americans with Disabilities Act is a huge kind of win. Um, but a lot of the kind of um, Clinton welfare reform that wasn't, or Clinton healthcare reform that wasn't, mm. had actually incorporated some of the asks of a coalition of HIV AIDS activists and kind of chronic illness activists who had sort of organized together to say that, you know, the practices of excluding people based on a pre-existing condition or um, uh, setting premiums in particular ways um, essentially was discriminatory and would, you know, create this healthcare system where the people most in need of healthcare could not get it. Um, and there are all sorts of kind of interesting bureauc bu bureaucratic solutions proposed to the problem from creating different risk pools, state subsidized risk pools, expanding Medicare and Medicaid that, um, it's not kind of a linear story. And I'm, I think in some part, I'm still trying to puzzle out how it does end, right? When it does end, or if it's still an ongoing one. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. And I'm talking to Salini Baman today about her project, the, the Borders of Care, Immigration, Welfare, and Intimacy in the Era of AIDS. So, um, so there's a lot in there. And I mean, particularly <laughs> um, been talking last week to several folks who are engaged in long COVID advocacy. and uh, it, I mean, we, you never get very far in the United States from this discussion of how an insurance company, uh, even in one state, perhaps operating just in one state, um, what they're going to decide is allowable and non-allowable and then how that's going to start making its way through the, through the courts. Um, and so I guess I want to ask you how you see this work now looking, well, we're not through COVID, but how, how COVID 
change the way that you, maybe some of the questions that you asked, or even just how you see you know, sort of the broader landscape of the work that you're doing about HIV AIDS? As you said earlier, to be writing about one pandemic while living through another is a is an uncanny experience, but also somebody with your analytical chops, it probably maybe sharpened or changed some of the, some of the questions too. Yeah, I'm trying, I guess I am unsure if doing the research I was doing changed how I approached COVID or if living through COVID changed the research or some version of both. But I think I have long known that there would be serious social, emotional kind of implications for living through a pandemic like this, because most of my sources are people sort of grappling with what it means to have all your friends die or be so scared that you're going to get sick or, you know, these really deep things. And I'm reading people's journals. So it is an intimate and um, kind of intense way of relating to people. And I think it has, it especially in the first months of the pandemic made kind of processing what was happening with COVID nearly like an emotional overload for me. It was very intense to imagine the kind of emotional complexity that every person on the street might have or be experiencing. I think it has also given me some degree of grace when people behave badly or you see sort of fights in activist spaces or, you know, whatever of just everyone is doing the best they can. I think I genuinely have to believe to move through such a challenging time. The way actually living through COVID may have changed some of my um, analytical thoughts. I think it has given me a better sense of how angry um, some of my actors must have been. I cannot imagine going through this if only I was talking about it mm. um, or only some people I knew were talking about it, but it was so part of my world. And I think we see a little bit of that, especially with people who have you know real chronic conditions or who still feel like the world has moved on from COVID, but they are unable to go outside and are kind of excluded from life as a result of it. I think that um, has been re really telling to me, um, or that may be kind of an example of what I'm talking about, but I don't think I can even, I even understood the emotional toll or like deep anger you must have had if you were not part of a national conversation, if no, everyone was ignoring you, if this, you know, catastrophic thing was happening in your life, but it was so clear that you were disposable to society. That feels more real to me. I feel more able to imagine that. And that's really powerful. And I know, you know, for any history teachers, and uh, I know there are some who are listening right now, I mean, this is, this is again, the argument um, building on what you said. I mean, this is the argument for these kinds of, of primary, what we would call a primary source, but like the journals that you're describing. I mean, these are, these are transformative sources and documents. Um, I haven't had a chance to see the ones that you're, that you're talking about, uh, but now I want to, and I can't wait to read your, your dissertation, which will I'm sure be a, a book not long after. And um, I think that's, Early in the pandemic, and many people went looking for those kinds of things all over the place. They went looking, you know, back, they were reading the Journal of the Plague Year. They were reading fiction. They were watching movies. Even things that, that a lot of times they were based in first-person narration or family-scale narration, somebody telling. And if they're films, they're, you know, uh, hyper-sensational. But still, there's usually a grain of something in there, which is person telling a story about a time which is confusing. And upended. And I'm curious to hear, you know, you just describe the power of that, having been used to doing that kind of reading when the when this pandemic was breaking out. Yeah. You know, you saying that kind of made me think. It also clarified to me how exceptional some of the people I'm reading about and writing about are, because some people in crisis do tremendous organizing or fight for their lives or write beautiful, you know, but not everyone's David Wojnarowicz. And as I sat at my computer and basically felt exhausted and fatigued and sad and, you know, all of these other things, I think it clarified to me that not there, there were so many people who did not leave records and that there is actually a lot we cannot know because some of that experience was just overwhelming and depressing and sad and quiet and outside of the 
kind of stickiness of an archive, even though they are remarkable archives. Um, but I think we all have a sense that we would be, um, you know, at the head of a mutual aid effort or doing something really wonderful. And so many people really did that. I saw my neighbors do tremendous things. And as I myself experienced a certain inability to do some of the things I had read about or talked about, it really made me wonder what are the conditions that allow people to organize in the face of crisis? And what are some of the sort of like intimate, trust-based, community-based preconditions that need to exist in order for you to form solidarities during crisis rather than be completely isolated? And I, I thought a lot about that during COVID of sort of what has changed between now and, you know, there was no Zoom um, in 1986, but you could also be in a room together and talk about things. So I did a lot of that kind of back and forth comparison. Well, it's such an important question too. And I I don't think you, maybe you didn't frame your dissertation necessarily this way, but it, it sounds like as you're describing it, um, the fact that you focused on people who already were being marginalized in society. So the LGBTQ community, migrants, people who have housing precarity, who already would know how to build and sustain networks that have to exist in the periphery of policymaking and politics. And then you have this disaster sweep across, and it's those networks that actually sustain them. I mean, you were talking about gay men's health crisis and ACT UP. I mean, these become really important political forces in the yes. even in the Reagan and Bush years, but certainly by the by the Clinton years, they're at the table helping to make policy. And, and but it begins in this what we would now looking back through COVID as a sort of mutual aid moment. And I think most people in the United States would have thought, oh well, who would need something? Who would need something like that if it's a global pandemic? Of course, the government will come and save me. And then it's like, oh, actually, it turns out if you're old in America, we'll sacrifice you. Also, if you're a child, sorry about that. Also, if you have pre-existing conditions, we can't, I mean, I could, we could go on and yeah, on. Yeah, so or if you got laid is, off, you know, exactly. like if you had any number of, you know, if you're a musician, if you had any right. number of careers that rely on an open, communicative society. I think also you, you mentioned that there, you know, they were marginalized people with these kind of networks of um, communal support. That's very true. And I also think something that's unique about those first years of the AIDS epidemic is you also had a lot of um, upwardly mobile professional people who are able to, you know, a lot of that insurance advocacy happens because there are insurance professionals who have AIDS and know how stop loss works and are able to sort of speak in the language of Aetna and Blue Cross and say, there's an actuarial basis for what I'm proposing as a, you know, a stopgap measure. And so there's kind of, there's activism happening on two levels. I think there are people in the streets who are saying we need universal health care, And this is a hundred percent the case that proves it. And you have people who say in the interim, how do we make sure that people can die with dignity or that people can have their medication covered? What kind of, you know, um, middle steps are possible to take? And Sarah Shulman's new book, it's kind of made up of, it's called Let the Record Show. It's a kind of narrativization of a lot of these oral histories that Sarah Shulman and many other people kind of had put together. They, It's a really incredible resource if people are sort of interested in um, exploring some of that ACT UP energy and thinking about how, you know, some of the organizing actually happened to create these mutual aid networks and also drive policy. I think that there's a lot there um, and people have, you know, different memories and different political perspectives on if ACT UP's legacy, it should be interpreted one way or another. Um, but as a primary source, it's kind of incredible. Quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Salani Baman today. One part we haven't touched on as much yet is the role of migration and immigration in the dissertation. And I think that's also a bridge to some of the other work that you've been doing, um, sort of advocacy-oriented history around anti-Asian violence during the this pandemic, 
not the first pandemic. So maybe could you say a little bit about how immigration plays into the dissertation and then let's talk about the um, other project that you've been engaged with, the Asian American Feminist Collective. Sure. Um, well, the immigration piece of the dissertation is still, it's very much what I'm trying to write right now. So it's a okay. little messy. I'm sorry that I'm keeping you from no, it. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I mean, I think it's nice to have an opportunity to talk about it, but the immigration piece, I think, functions in two ways. One, there's a real um, policy response to exclude based on the, you know, ba on the basis of an HIV diagnosis that begins in the 80s. Um, many people who've kind of lived through that era might remember the case of the Haitian boat people um, who were sort of excluded from entry into the United States and then excluded from Haiti, um, also based on the on a positive HIV test, who were then detained at Guantanamo Bay for many, many months um, and at the Chrome Detention Facility in Miami, or right outside of Miami. Um, so that's kind of a highly visible moment of immigration restriction. But the U.S. actually had several kind of attempts to deny amnesty to anyone who'd taken a positive HIV test or who had received a positive HIV test to um, make HIV a a permanently excludable condition that would deny you a green card. That was true until very recently. Um, and I've been trying to kind of unravel what is at the root of some of that. Is it fear of contagion, genuine fear of contagion, of sort of outside contagion coming in? Or is it, uh, you know, is there a, a kind of political economic explanation to it too of the specter of the unworthy immigrant um, driving up healthcare costs, being sort of a, a charge of the state? Um, and sort of the way that HIV-related illness and diagnosis comes to become so increasingly associated with um, welfare dependency and one of these things that is really rolled into one. And, uh, just to pick up on one part of that, I guess, you know, since you're a real scholar of this period, when does the dominant image of HIV become Haitian or become African, because I, I wonder about that as it becomes racially coded, because the early images of HIV in the United States, I mean, I think, as I talked earlier on COVID calls last year, I mean, it could be children, um, or it could be white, you know, as you said, upwardly mobile professional men in the United States. And the film Philadelphia, I think, probably had a role for a lot of Americans to sort of see that and it creates an imaginary of what AIDS is. But, you know, as I remember that time, as we move into the nineties, the dominant image becomes one of some of other. Yeah. And, and I wonder how that factors into this immigration analysis. I think that's a great question. I think that it is almost always both. And, you know, some, one of the bigger organizing partners that the gay men's health crisis has in New York City is the Haitian coalition and then the Haitian coalition on AIDS. So there are kind of community um, workers who have identified risk factors, community groups. It is, you know, Haitians are disproportionately affected by HIV AIDS in New York City. That is a true fact. Um, but the public perception of AIDS is coming from Africa and being this kind of um, illness that's associated with blackness and therefore kind of additionally otherized and marginalized, I think um, happens as early as the 80s, but as the profile of who um, gets HIV becomes increasingly blacker and browner, um, by 1986 in New York, the kind of fastest growing demographic of um, people with AIDS are black women, actually, even though the CDC does not actually say that women can get AIDS until 1994. Um, I know that's kind of a amazing. A, I had a statistic. That. That's, that's oh yeah, astounding. and you know, and the ACT UP is doing advocacy, saying women don't get AIDS; they just die from it. Women don't are not eligible for um, disability benefits unless they have a formal diagnosis, which you need to have certain symptoms that present differently in women. Unless, of course, they happen to be part of the small minority of women who come down with something like TB, which is a recognized manifestation of mm. um, AIDS, or you know. There are a lot of ways in which the imagination of who gets AIDS, who are we responsible for with AIDS, and what is the spectacle either of a professional white gay man getting it and we didn't expect that, or sort of this third world vision of you know AIDS overtaking the global south. I think both of those play into sort of a geopolitical conversation, but also a local conversation around who needs to be worried and who is outreach mm -hmm. supposed to be going to? And a lot of public health workers 
are essentially trying to say that anyone can get AIDS and safe sex is something that we need to talk about kind of regardless of um, whether or not someone is demographically at risk for HIV AIDS. And I definitely think I saw a lot of the same kind of thinking early on in the pandemic. And I don't know hmm. if, I mean, obviously they're very different, um, you know, syndromes and their COVID is an airborne virus. Um, but I definitely remember, I think there's kind of a, a undergirding logic of, you know, purity and pollution that is almost bigger than and so coded with some of our like racial assumptions and prejudices and the power dynamics of such where i think i have witnessed so many conversations where people do not think they can get covid from some places right or do not think that their family members can give them covid even though that is the number one way clusters of covid were spreading early in the epidemic or you know, didn't think that they needed to take precautions if they were going to a fancy enough yoga studio. I remember that being this big kind of conversation that was happening in New York in late February and early March about how it could not possibly happen in the United States. And it was provenance of other dirtier parts of the world. Um, and even the discussion of, you know, the shock for many months that people had that COVID had not, um, you know, escalated in India and Africa until of course it did, was a really telling one about how we kind of al or think that disease spreads and which bodies are more susceptible to it or bigger vectors of it. I think those are really racially coded things that um, we rarely speak about. Absolutely, I mean, I and, and some, I don't like to generalize too much because like a historian like you, I get a little bit antsy when we start talking <laughs> about human society, but this, this um, immediacy around forming a border and protecting a border. And that border can be a physical place, it could be an airport, but it can also be a sort of imaginary as well, a border around race. And I think, you know, Donald Trump, I don't like to talk about him too much anymore in this context, but I mean, he hit every note to create both a physical border as well as a racial border around Asia, I mean, around China, but uh, there's a lot of slippage there and saying that this is a disease of Asia. And of course, uh, that's deeply problematic at a million different levels, one of which is that um, infection control in large parts of East Asia was superb. And also the East Coast, you know, the early variant of COVID came from Europe. And so here's Trump out in his daily speech warning about the dangers of of China, where the people in his um, inner circle are getting the disease, and it's coming um, from from white European, you know, interaction and and travel. So that level of it, I think, is is an important parallel to draw. I guess I wonder another part of that, just looking at vaccination now and vaccine availability. It makes me wonder if two to five years out from now we'll have a similar kind of development that. AIDS will be seen as something that's really an African, it's a global South issue, which will be an artifact of vaccine availability. And it will become a sort yeah. of weird, you know, racial, racially coded thing, which will reinforce people's idea about the global South as an unhealthy place. When in fact, India, at least before the second wave, they had very low infection rates. East Asia maintains low infection rates today. Yeah. And I think even, I mean, I'm sure you've heard if you've talked about AIDS with someone the last five years, you know, the the narrative or the, the truth that it's not a death sentence and that there are very good medications and that things changed after 1994 in the United States certainly might be true of many insured people in the United States. Um, but it is medication shortage that really does make AIDS a death sentence in other parts of the world, um, be it kind of, you know, shortage of all sorts of combination therapies in places like Mexico or the gatekeeping of access to them to, I mean, I have, you know, HIV positive friends who would say I would never take a job that didn't have health insurance. That's just not an option that's open to me anymore. Right. right. And so I think that we have, there are ways in which our societal reluctance to have some sort of universal coverage system or a needs-based allocation of the tremendous technology we have to keep people alive and safe a world around results in the life people's life's courses being changed um and the kind of options available to you being very different um but yeah i i 
had a very emotional time getting my vaccine because I was eligible because I was teaching fairly, you know, in the spring, late spring. Um, and my 80 something year old grandparents in India were not, had no vaccine in sight, had no wow. access to it. It was really difficult for me to sort of translate that and also understand that, you know, it's not like refraining from getting a vaccine makes it more accessible elsewhere, but it, it's kind of a brutal reality of a certain kind of transnational migration or like, you know, global um, power dynamic that it is sometimes easier not to look at than others. Yeah, thank you for sharing that insight about your about your grandparents. I mean, I've been living in South Korea and um, the most common reaction I get when I talk to people who are in the United States uh, about the fact that I, my family is only now, I was vaccinated in October. Um, and my oldest uh, son is halfway through his vaccinations. The common response I get is, oh, wow, like, really? That, that, a deep surprise that we didn't have vaccine. But there's another layer to it, which a colleague um, expressed last week. He said, oh, I would have thought as an American, you would have had it. Which, in other words, there was an assumption that even an expatriate would have access no matter right. what. And that has actually been a pretty angry discourse here in parts of East Asia with Americans who have gone to embassies and basically made the case, hey, we deserve this. The embassies are giving out vaccines? No, they're not. Or, oh, oh, interesting. So there's an assumption that they yeah. should be, or that yeah. you know, oh, your status so as an American anywhere in the world allows me to be in, the, in a, a nation of 52 million people that I'm the one who should get it first because I happen to carry the US passport, which is a deeply yeah. unsettling proposition. It's truly, it's, that's wild. And I, you know, I became a U I was born in India. I became a U.S. citizen in 2011. And I also remember the distinct feeling of getting my U.S. passport and feeling like I had, like that was gold or something, right? It was this, it, not, it maybe didn't translate to belief, but it felt like participation in a really great insurance plan, right? Like that was the Blue Cross Absolutely. Blue Shield yeah. Platinum Edition. Um, and I think that, some of the same, I think there are ways in which Americans feel like they should be inoculated from risk by sheer virtue of their, you know, membership in the global hegemon of the world or something. And there's nothing quite like a pandemic to knock you down to size on that front. Um, Absolutely. Well, yeah. then I want to ask you about um, your work with the Asian American Feminist Collective. And I want to turn you, you co-authored a, a really great essay for Truth Out uh, it was co-authored, um, got the title here, uh, sorry, Attacks on Asian Women Are Fueled by Criminalization, War, and Economic Injustice. This appeared in Truthout March 23rd of this year. You did it with Rachel Coe. Uh, um, I, I want to just going to read a sentence from this, but I want to get you to expand on it a little bit. This is a really great piece, and I'm going to put the link up as well. The U.S. permanent war, you you write, and military occupation in Asia at different points in history, including the Philippine-American War, World War II, Korean War, and Vietnam War, to ongoing geopolitical tensions with China in the present is connected to longstanding violence against Asian women. Can you bring us back into the context of why you wrote this piece? Uh, people will maybe have even forgotten, which I find terrifying <laughs> why they would have. But I mean, last year and this year, well, have been deeply unsettling um, years of violence around the world and the United States against Asians, particularly Asian women. So tell me about this essay. Sure. So the Asian American Feminist Collective is a kind of grassroots gender justice group, political education group. My really my four close friends and I um, work on together. Rachel is one of them. Um, and she's also a wonderful academic and uh, media studies scholar. But we had basically been responding to this terrible shooting in Atlanta at a massage parlor um, where a white man had gone in and shot many women and I think uh, a man, in fact, and workers at the massage parlors. And when asked his reason, had basically said that he um, found the sexual temptation of these women to be overwhelming and upsetting. And it was you know, one, it was a truly shocking and horrifying event. It was a moment of spectacular violence that was um, required commentary and acknowledgement. But it was also picked up by the news media in a very particular way as a moment of spectacular and exceptional violence that had almost no root. Um, and 
Asian American Feminist Collective was founded in 2016, shortly after the election of Donald Trump and sort of thinking about what bringing a feminist analysis to certain kinds of identity politics or even like a liberation politics would look like um, and how talking about things like patriarchy or, you know, militarism is essential to um, thinking about our feminism and our Asian American activism and bringing those things together. And we talk often about police violence against sex workers, um, massage parlor worker organizing, especially in places like Flushing. We've worked very closely with an organization called Red Canary Song um, that organizes massage parlor workers in Flushing kind of against police brutality and brings light to the fact that often you have organizations like the NYPD who instrumentalize the fact that many massage parlor workers are undocumented. Um, they fear being reported to ICE. Um, they're extremely vulnerable in that they are doubly isolated both from you know, respectable Asian American communities and um, far from their own families and do not have a lot of recourse if there are abuses of power. And so we've been talking about that for a little while and it felt like a piece that was missing from the conversation about what had happened in Atlanta was about the fact that these women were Asian American women who were coded as sex workers, whether or not they actually were, and that that had become so a part of their racialized identity. And if you're in Asian American movement spaces, particularly feminist ones, it's not surprising that Asian American women are often hypersexualized, coded as either tiger women or dragon ladies. They're all of these kind of tropes that um, are bandied about and I think fairly normalized actually in our culture, um, but have violent repercussions for the women involved. Um, and that's not a new thing. And we had been talking a lot about how um, everything from immigration policies to US military policies on bases had actually coded and prefigured a lot of that kind of relationship with, or you know, societal relationship of understanding Asian American women as primarily sex objects, as sort of relationally important to smoothing over US military relations and occupations mm -hmm. in the Asia Pacific region where there are you know, many military bases. Um, Sorry, I've rambled a little bit, but we kind of wanted oh. to bring out a longer history and think about what slow violence looks like, right? So many of the people who were in moments of spectacularized violence, grandmothers on the street who were beaten up or the women in Atlanta were kind of frozen in amber, but we didn't consider the longer scope of their lives where why were women being made to live in a massage parlor and work there all day? or you know, choosing to, why was that the best option available to them? Probably because of a long history of excluding women if they get divorced, but came here on a spousal visa from welfare protections, from making it impossible for people to get housing assistance, from having almost no language accessible resources about how women could get either you know intimate partner violence resources or access to housing, welfare, food stamps, any number of those things. And then the really concerted reduction of you know social service supports and extreme stigmatization of sex work so it's those things working in concert that kind of also created the conditions for this to happen right not it didn't just come out of nowhere um yeah so that was sort of one of the the thrusts of that article we kind of wanted to think about how how did the asian american woman come to occupy this specific hypersexualized space and one of our answers was because of a much longer history of war and kind of colonialism that the U.S. has participated in. Well, thanks for describing it, and it is a great. I mean, the the piece is a deep dive into history of, in in a in a short essay, but it's really what I thought was needed for that moment. And I'm glad you mentioned a couple of the quite specific um, policies, and maybe just give you a chance to, if you wanted to say anything more about the to the extent that some of those policies are still in place that somehow they made policies that grow out of uh, um, the united states imperialism looking towards asia and it creates a sort of a um a set of policies that normalize um the making of family i suppose if you wanted to be charitable about it um so that asian women can come back to the u.s because they've married a gi or any number of other, maybe, you know, various moments in which refugees might have been welcomed, like Vietnamese refugees might have been welcomed in the 1970s, but then in immediately marginalized in society. I just wonder how, if there's a couple of other 
you know, sort of points we should be looking to, like even specific policies that still haven't changed or things we should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, something that's really interesting, we were just talking about um, amnesty and AIDS and, you know, the, the amnesty bill is in a 1986 piece of legislation called the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And often when we think about, if you're an immigration historian, you know that 1965 was the kind of year that Asiatic immigration was allowed in the U.S. in a different way. And it created a lot of problems also. It, you know, the 1965 Immigration Act created the conditions for the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border now. It created some of the, you know, visa lottery issues that we see now. It was not this unambiguously good thing, but it had undone a lot of explicitly exclusionary policies towards Asia, including lifting something called the Asiatic Bard Zone, it was in the 50s, but, um, and kind of formally ending an era that was defined by Chinese exclusion and real fear that Asian migration would overrun the US in unique ways that needed mm -hmm. to be guarded against. But the 1986 Immigration Act, IRCA, which is kind of heralded for providing amnesty for undocumented immigrants for the first time in a long time, also includes um, marriage fraud amendments, which are all about rooting out the specter of marriage fraud, um, particularly among, I mean, one of the cases that's really debated in Congress is among um, women who've married GIs or been mail order brides for men, many of whom are veterans of wars in Asia, kind of interestingly, um, and then have gotten divorces once they're in the United States. Um, and there were kind of studies done at the time about the very steep rates of intimate partner violence these women faced once they emigrated. Um, and you know, the many push factors that may have caused them to immigrate or think that that was a, a viable and you know, hopeful um, path forward for their lives. But there is a real anger towards those women on behalf of legislators who basically understand the entire premise as a scam to get access to U.S. welfare resources. And so there are very punitive um, things that are put in place, uh, basically creating waiting periods before you can access welfare, creating kind of the infamous immigration marriage interview that I'm sure if you've ever had a friend who's, you know, applied for a visa through marriage, you've had a kind of inc intrusive interview with a INS official who's asked you what colors your spouse's toothbrush, and you kind of prove um, that you are indeed together in ways that really mirror some of what we were talking about with right. the AIDS crisis. Um, and I, I think that only harshens. So the Clinton welfare reforms also add in new um, restrictions that make it very difficult to access the kind of social safety net support that I think, especially for women, but really, you know, partners everywhere, um, make it possible to leave a dangerous situation. And I think also really clarify what role those women are meant to serve in the imaginary of immigration officials, right? Why they are coming to do the socially reproductive labor of their husbands, of the people who have brought them. Um, and kind of divorced from that role, the US state does not have place for them, nor does it have the capacity to care for them. And so there's kind of an illicit economy they have to engage in. I don't know. I'm I'm still working through some yeah. of those thoughts. It's yeah. not my most historically minded thing, but those are definitely some places I would encourage people to sniff around a little. Well, we're almost up on time, but I there's uh, I just want to ask one related question to that before we conclude. So I mean, you've completely nailed down that that deeper history um, completely. I think it's totally compelling. But bring it back to COVID because. So you have the underlying grounds for that violence, and as you use the you know the slow violence concept, slow disaster concept, it's playing out in real time all the time. But somehow it doesn't make the front page of the New York Times um, for structural reasons. Is um, but then all of a sudden the violence becomes spectacular uh, in 2020 and into 2021. How do you connect that to the pandemic? I mean, how do you in what ways? And even the murder rates last year in the United States were, were um, I mean, yeah, higher than they've ever been. I've heard a lot of sort of like, you know, right off the table kind of explanations, but I'm I'm searching for a deeper understanding too. Yeah, I think that a big piece of some of the anti-Asian violence we saw, if we look at the people who were most affected by it, was that it happened to people who did not have a choice but to be outside, right? Mm. So street vendors, 
service workers, people who are doing things like collecting, recycling on the streets, people who did not have the luxury of being indoors, like many of us were at a time that was dangerous. I think tensions are running high. I think that there was kind of, it, COVID has not been good for our collective mental health as a people, right? The resources and structures that people have had or that I think have kept many people at danger of um, kind of losing touch with reality, a little bit tethered to reality have really eroded. Um, and many of the things like regular check-ins with a social worker or resources that you could access became really constricted and everything from, you know, shelter access to kind of routines that people relied on became really, um, constricted and everyone, but the people who absolutely could not avoid it stayed inside. And so I think that was a big part of what happened. And I also think that what you alluded to, the kind of increase in intimate partner violence and spousal murder is very much because a lot of violence does happen inside the home. And just like we don't believe that we can get COVID from our family members on an intuitive level, I think that as a society, we don't necessarily understand violence as something that is happening inside houses, right? So sometimes I think when we look at statistics that involve murder or violence writ large, there is an imaginary that that's happening out on the street. I think a lot of it actually is also happening inside people's homes. I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I've really enjoyed my conversation today with Salani Bauman. And um, before we close out, I do need to acknowledge um, that this connection was made by a recent COVID calls guest, George Homwatt, who's also a genius. And um, I'm glad he made that connection and that I got to hear about your project, The Borders of Care, Immigration, Welfare, and Intimacy in the Era of AIDS. And Salani, also, thank you for the Asian American Feminist Collective and that work and for 